Amen. Um, I want to begin before I preach. Um, thank you, Donna Oliver, for reminding me of this. Um, I uh, used to be a part of a Korean Presbyterian church. I've shared this with you guys before. And um, they had this beautiful way of praying. Uh, when I would go to the church, my favorite thing was going to the prayer meeting. And they would bring up a need. And you know how when we bring up a need at a prayer meeting, somebody will pray and then another person will pray. And then when it fizzles out, you bring up another need. And they didn't pray like that. They, they would all pray at the same time. And for me, who I don't speak Korean. Um, it, it was beautiful because it, it, it sounded like heaven. It sounded like what I imagine glory will be like. And then you'd hear one guy go, <clears throat> and then he would close the prayer. And it, it was beautiful. And, and, and one of the greatest honors I've had so far in being a Christian is um, this group of, of Koreans. I was the only Anglo guy there. They would ask me to lead the prayer meeting. So I wouldn't know what they were praying about. And, uh, they were just confident that the spirit w would allow it. And um, I want to do that this morning for the cooks. So anybody who uh, is, wants to gather around them, please lay hands on them. And then I'm going to ask you to pray. And everybody just pray out loud at the same time. And then I'll give a hum and, and, and close this. And if this is weird to you, I'm sorry. But um, laying hands and praying is something that's profoundly biblical. Uh, let it, let's pray. Lord, you have told us in your word, who is sick among you, let them call upon the elders and be anointed, and that prayer and faith will restore, Lord. We ask that you would bring health to Ken, that you would bring supernatural strength to Peg, Lord. God, I pray that you would move in a profound profound way, Lord. And by Peg, you know that I meant Deb. <laughs> Lord, use these prayers of your saints that are prayed in faith and bring healing in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you, follow up with Ken and Deb and ask them, pray with expectation that the Lord will do mighty things. Well, <clears throat> we have a series upcoming called Beginnings that I, I'm just so delighted. I, I've been wanting to preach Genesis for my entire uh, time being a pastor, and I've just never gotten around to it. So what we're going to do is we're going to break the first 12 into, uh, we're going to go really detailed, slow. We're going to kind of trod through those first 12 chapters. Then after Abraham, we're going to do a series after Beginnings, a mini-series called The Patriarchs. We're going to go through the patriarchs and show how each of them was in the line of the ultimate Messiah that would come and pointed to Jesus. And then we're going to finish it with a series on the life of Joseph called Typology. Um, and that's going to show how the, uh, the life of Joseph was really just pointing so much to Jesus. Um, this slave king who went in and allowed himself to be subjected so that he might save his brothers. Um, what, a, what a beautiful gospel story. So I can't wait to get into that, but even more excited 
This morning, consider these words, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Think of these words, because they were penned by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to be in our text this morning. This is written that you may know. This is good news. I've been so jumping up and down about this text this week. Just to, I'm so excited about it that I called Eric yesterday and I said, whatever the snow is, hello out there in YouTube land, that, that if it's just him playing guitar and me preaching, that we're going to do it, and it's just going to be a fun time of worship. So thank you all for being here, that it's not that. That's way more fun. Um, but I am so amped on this text. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, where you can follow along behind me, um, and there's Bibles in the seats, um, some of the seats in front of you. So we're preparing to finish the book of 1 John, and I pray that you've been as blessed as I have. I thought this has been just a fantastic study. Uh, Andy said something last week that really flows into our final text. He talked about how the confidence that we have comes from the reality of our relationship with Jesus. Well, confidence in our walk with Jesus is the final thought that John uses to wrap up this letter. And in my opinion, he saved the best for last. And this was a blast to study, and it's a blast to preach. So as we close this book, John is writing like a father, trying to reassure his children that they should be able to be confident in their relationship and their heavenly father. If we've had a real encounter with Jesus, which is really like if you want to give um, what the book of 1 John is about, the whole book is about a real encounter with Jesus. So if you want one statement that's kind of your thesis statement of the book and somebody says you studied through 1 John Let me hear you say it so that you know what the book is about. A real encounter with Jesus. That was terrible. Let me hear you say it so that I really want you guys to remember it. Sometimes saying things give a mnemonic hook so that you'll remember it. So 1 John is about a real encounter with Jesus. Amen. And if we're living for Jesus, he's closing the book saying, you should be able to be secure in that relationship. With Jesus. And friends, this issue of confidence is a really, really big topic. It might, it might not be one of those topics where you leave church. Like those of you that like messages with here's two or three things that you can go to do this week to go and be a better Christian, um, we're not going to be doing that. But that doesn't make this any less practical. Um, this is real life, touches every aspect of your life kind of stuff. And friends, Um, I don't want to show a hands, but how many here have ever struggled in their confidence in their walk with Jesus? Uh, um, I've got a slide, just a couple of of thoughts and questions to provoke your hearts. Anybody ever wondered where they stand with the Lord? Has anybody ever doubted the reality of their salvation? You know, I used to go to a church where they would pray the sinner's prayer at the end of every, every service. And you know what I would do? pray the sinner's prayer at the end of every service because I was like what if those other 364 times didn't work maybe the 365th time is really the key so I've struggled with that and I'll bet you I'm not the only one I'm seeing some nods out there like yeah I, I, I get that anybody who has anybody ever fallen into sin and all of a sudden God feels distant feels like God went somewhere when we know in reality God didn't go anywhere you did Um, Anybody ever struggled 
with the fact that God does not seem as near and as present than the hour you first believed. Um, boy, is that a common struggle. I hear people say all the time, I like to be around new believers because they just stoke that fire in me and they remind me of when things were just new and pure before they got complicated, right? Um, anybody who has ever had a spiritual attack and a time of spiritual attack and after a time where they struggle, have you had a time where your confidence was shaken during a time of attack by the enemy? Um, and again, no show of hands, but just asking your heart this. Um, this is between you and Jesus. Is anybody in a spot like that right now? Uh, I know that you're out there. I, I talk to people all the time that wrestle with these fears, so I know that you're out there. I read through the Psalms, and I see that David had these same fears. Oh, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51, right? I look at the end of the Gospel of John and see that Peter wrestled in his walk with Jesus. Remember when he catches that glance from Jesus on the cross right after he denied him the third time. I always wonder, and it says in, in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus looked over and he just locked eyes with Peter, and Peter ran away and wept. I can't imagine Peter struggled with his confidence. So if you've ever struggled with your confidence and security in your walk with Christ, then this one's for you this morning. If you're here and, and, and you've never struggled with your confidence, if you've always just known that you're just a straight-up baller and that you are awesome all the time and you never struggled in confidence with Christ because after all you're you and how could God not love you um, then this one's not for you um, but if you're currently struggling with confidence this is probably the greatest passage in the Bible to go to if that's where you're at and that's why I'm so excited to preach it it has been a source of comfort and encouragement for insecure believers of all ages um, as you read through this passage you know I just want to ask you a question I, I'm so much more comfortable preaching today I feel like I could just sit and chat with you guys like a fireside chat for hours so can I not wear suit jackets anymore and just wear hoodies because uh, man this, <laughs> ouch Shut down by my mom. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take that as uh, honoring your mother, your father, and I'll move on. Um, but um, as you read through this passage, I want you to do so through the eyes of a father. You know, if Gracie ever came home crying, and I saw that something happened, and I saw that her confidence was shaken, and it was like that Rich Mullins song, Hold Me Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been my king of glory. Would you be my prince of peace? If she was in that place, what kind of dad would I be if I didn't stop everything I was doing and give her the fullness of my attention and sit with her and show her the power of her identity in Christ? I would tell her, you are beautiful. You've been made beautiful by Christ and labor to see herself as the beautiful child of God that her daddy sees her as, but more importantly, that her heavenly father sees her as. And that's what John's doing here as he closes the book. And he does it right, man. As a child of God, you should be confident in your walk with Jesus. It's all, listen to this. Get this. This is going to be the premise. Confidence with Jesus was part of the package that was offered to you at the cross. When he said, 
it is finished. He meant wavering in your confidence as well. And my notifications are clearly on, and that's why that thing just dinged. Um, so um, John is showing his little children that they could have security in God's love and therefore be confident because they can be secure because of the one who loved them. Our society works so hard to build up children's self-esteem, and they stink at it. Um, if you read any study, it's plummeting. Yet we want to just, we think that we're going to build children up by telling each of them that you're a snowflake and there's no one like you, and, uh, and you get a participation trophy and everything. Um, well, John's doing something better than that because he's showing you not to ground your confidence in participation trophies and other things that waver. As a result of this self-esteem without putting Christ at the center of it, we have a generation with a raging sense of entitlement, but nothing to fall back on when their confidence is shaken. Um, that's the issue. That's why depression and suicides and all the like are on, on the rise. But John does it right. Rather than ground our confidence in things that are shakable foundations, he grounds it in the Lord. So in last week's passage, he makes the point that we can be confident in what we believe and the reality of who we believed in. This week, he builds on that and shows you that since we can be confident in who we put our trust in, we can be confident in the relationship that we have with him. So if you ever struggled with your confidence or are struggling with it now, I pray that you would be deeply, deeply ministered to, and you would leave this place. Listen, this is the power of the preached word of God. It's not just the notes that you take that you start to apply during the week. If you're struggling with that, the Holy Spirit of God, who is present in this place, can come in and change that right now. I mean, do you believe that the Spirit of God can do that? If you're here and you're shaken, do you believe that the Holy Ghost is big enough to say, look, I love you my kid and you don't have to live that way I'm going to take that be confident in your daddy because you're mine so John starts off by talking about how we could be confident that we are secure in Christ look at verse 12 and 13 whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son does not have life I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So check out the way that John puts it, because this is super cool. He's telling you why he's writing the book. He wraps up the book in one sentence and tells you the point of the whole thing, of why he wrote it to you. You ever hear of Cliff Notes? Man, there's nothing new under the sun. John just gave you the Cliff Notes. If you, if you were too lazy to read the five-page book, he gave you one sentence that you would be like, where was that in high school when I had to read like the Grapes of Wrath and other stuff that I didn't want to read? So he, he's saying that the reason that I'm writing to you is for those of you who have really put your genuine faith in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's talking to genuine believers here. Look again back at verse 12 just to show you that he's talking to genuine believers in Jesus. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So the confidence that he's writing about doesn't make sense without verse 12. That's why even though my passage is on verse 13, it's on 
Um, verse 12 needs to be included. In my Bible, there's actually like a little heading between 12 and 13, which makes no sense at all because the two truths have to be inseparably linked for them to make any sense. And as Andy preached last week, it's our relationship with Jesus that gives us confidence, a real, authentic relationship. So he's writing to those who have the Son, those who stand justified in Christ. All who have the Son have life, it says in verse 12. So he's writing to genuine believers in Jesus, and he's saying, look, I want you to know something. Any of you out there who have genuinely put your faith in Jesus, he's saying, I want you to know something. I want you to know that you can know that you have eternal life. I want to take the guesswork out of your relationship with God and replace it with confidence in that relationship. This is the Christian doctrine of assurance. Let me hear you say assurance. Assurance. So I'm going to talk about two different doctrines. They're very close. They overlap. But I want you to know, I want you to know the intricacies of them because they're important. So then this is the doctrine called assurance. Let me hear you say it again. Thank you very much. Um, so not only can we have confidence that everybody who's genuinely put their faith in Christ will someday be saved and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's a different doctrine, much like assurance, but it's called perseverance. Let me hear you say perseverance. Amen. So John is making the point a little bit more personal than the doctrine of perseverance. And he's saying, if we genuinely believe in Jesus, we should be able to know that we have eternal life and a genuine relationship with Jesus in this life. I remember talking to this Muslim man that I was witnessing to one time. He became great friends with me, Jorhan. Um, and I asked him, Jorhan, how do you know that Allah approves of you and that you're going to be one of the ones that ends up in paradise? And he said, well, nobody can ever fully know that. When we get to the end, our deeds will be weighed on the scale. And Allah will say whether he... So I said, so if the, if the scale's tipped in your favor, then Allah brings you into paradise? And he says, well, no. He has the final decision. I was like, wow. So even if you do think that in your own system of works righteousness, that the works outweighed the good and the bad, you could still just be told, eh, I don't think so. You, you don't make the cut. And John, in this passage, is saying, look, I've got good news! The gospel's not like that. That's what he's trying to end the book with. If we're in Christ, God has already secured your eternity. You who are the predestined and the elect have been justified, and you shall be glorified in Christ. We're in Christ. We already have our security. It's our eternity secure. And we can know that here and now, and we can rest in that here and now, and we can have peace in that here and now. And everything else that we do in our Christian walk comes out of that place of standing in confidence. Assurance is one of those doctrines. I want to be clear here because I know that people believe different things. Assurance is one of those doctrines that we hold with a closed hand here. There is no room for debate, at least not here in Redeemer. And I would never be a part of a church that didn't hold this doctrine with a closed hand. Frankly, I don't understand what people get 
out of trying to argue with this doctrine? What do you get out of arguing against assurance? It's like I remember somebody arguing with me about the doctrine of irresistible grace. And this man had two wayward children that were completely just going the way of the world and have left the faith. And I said, why would you argue this? Don't you believe that if God is calling them back, that he's going to be able to achieve that which he started? That Philippians 1.6, see who began a good work, will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus? Like, you have two kids out there. Why wouldn't you believe that that powerful, irresistible grace is going to be irresistible? And I think the same thing when people argue against the doctrine of assurance. Look, if you're arguing against the doctrine, the best that you can get, check this out, if you win, Let's say you're out there, you want to come and talk to me after the service, you're a flaming Arminian, and you want to say, like, look, I'm going to just knock you down because I don't believe this. The best you can get if you won the argument is that you can spend the rest of your life hoping that you make the grade and end up being one of the ones that inherit eternal life. Congratulations. That's the victor's prize if you win that argument. But we don't hold this with a closed hand because we like argumentation about doctrine. It's not that at all. We just believe that not only is it clear in Scripture, but it's also really close to the heart of the gospel and the heart of God himself. And we also believe that God who chose us and the God who chose us is an omniscient God who did not choose you with a plan of unchoosing you. Check this out. If you want another truth to just remember when you leave here, God did not elect you with a prenup, okay? When God married you, there was no prenuptial agreement in place. He does not plan on breaking off this relationship ever. The God who set his sights on you is going to keep you. And also, I mean, I think the check and the mate about this truth is that we all believe that we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, right? So how can you do anything to forfeit something that you didn't earn to begin with? It was a gift to you. God said that neither height nor depth nor things above or things below or any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want a show of hands of how many created things there are out of there, uh, out there. If you're a created thing, raise your hand. Okay, so when any, no created thing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, wouldn't that include yourself if you're a created thing? He's awesome like that. Uh, I want to share with you a few reasons that we hold this doctrine of perseverance and assurance with a closed hand. For you note takers, I believe we have a slide for this. One, it affects the way that you see God. If you see God in such a way where you're wondering, oh my gosh, I've messed up again. Here I am, Lord, the same sin over and over again. I've repented of it again. Do I even call my accountability partner this time? Because it's the 80th time I've confessed the same sin. Man, if you don't believe in the doctrine of assurance, it's going to affect the way that you see God. If you see God as a loving God who planned on electing you because he plans to keep you, you know that even if you've fallen into the muck and the mire, that you can continue to run to him like the prodigal, and he will run to you like the father, and he's going to wrap his arms around you. You know what else it affects? It affects the way that you see the gospel. Is the gospel truly good news if at some point it can become bad news? It affects the way that you approach 
or don't approach God in times of failure. Man, is that important. Has anybody ever failed and you feel like, I can't even pick up my Bible today. He, he knows what I did. I don't even feel like I could pray. He knows where my mind has been. If you don't believe in the doctrine of assurance, it can really affect the way that you see him in the seasons of your failure. It affects the grace that we extend or don't extend to others during time of their failure. I mean, somebody that's fully aware that, wow, every time I fall short, I have a loving father that, that just dotes on me. And I don't go in and out of his affections. He doesn't... Uh, when it says that we have peace with God through Christ in Romans 6, peace with God is not a ceasefire. It's not like he's saying you have peace until the next time you mess up and then yeah, I'm going I'm to whack you. He doesn't look at you like that. But if you don't see it like that, then you're going to have a hard time being gracious to other people. It affects the grace that we extend or don't extend to ourselves in times of failure. If you believe in the doctrine of assurance, you know that you could do like David did after the sin of Bathsheba, and you could just lay yourself prostrate before him and say, God, what have I in heaven but you? Or like Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone are the one with the words of eternal life, and it affects the way that we live our lives. So where does our assurance come from? It comes from having the right Jesus. That's what this whole book was about. It was dealing with this Gnostic view uh, of an immaterial Jesus. And we saw that in last week's passage. So you have to believe in the biblical Jesus to be saved, not a made-up version of Jesus. And there's a lot of made-up versions of Jesus out there. It has to be the authentic way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus Christ. That's who your belief has to be in. It also comes from right belief. Man, we put our trust in the good news, so we need to embrace the fact that there is no other way under heaven by which man might be saved. When you embrace that, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and I've switched those two, then you shall be saved. Right belief. It's also right response. If you want assurance, a right response to that belief. As Jesus comes into your heart and begins to show you a world that you never were able to see because he takes the scale off your eyes. Repentance. Oh, God, how could I have just loved this world so much when your kingdom is so much more beautiful? Belief. And if you have the right Jesus and right belief and right response and have genuine salvation resulting in perseverance, then there's one more element that gives us assurance of our salvation, and that's right living. And I want you to hear me on this. This is important. This is, um, this is something, unfortunately, we have um, in this area, and I don't say this to pick on anybody, I promise, we have a lot of people that come out of Roman Catholicism. And, and they would put this paradigm backwards. So uh, I'm, the one thing I hate is when Protestants do Catholic bashing. So I promise you I'm not doing that. But I do want to explain that the right order is, is pretty critical. Uh, it's not right living resulting in coming to Jesus. 
and then believing to Jesus and then responding to Jesus. You don't have sanctification before justification. It does not work like that. That, that, Catch that saying, you cannot have sanctification before justification. And that's that's the essence of the, the, the Roman system. Um, it's right Jesus, right belief, right response, resulting in righteous life. That's the, that's the order. It's the only order that it makes sense. That's what the whole book has been about. A life and change, changing encounter with Jesus Christ should result in a life that's been altered in every way. Because the old man has perished and the new man has come. Changed forever, altered by the Son of God. And the result of that is an ongoing confidence, security, and the reality of your relationship with Jesus. And I would just add one more right order. It's critical to have these things in the right order. You cannot put your sanctification before your justification. So why is this a big deal? Because God is a loving Father. And I promise you I'm going to hit the rest of this text. But that one verse is so powerful. It deserves the majority of our time. Uh, Why is this a big deal? Because God is a loving father and wants us to have confidence in our relationship with him. Imagine you who are married out there. Imagine if your marriage depended on your ability to be able to perform at a perfect rate for your spouse. And your confidence in your spouse's love was based on your ability to be perfect to them. When bodies change, um, you get older, someone can lose their job, someone could have a season of depression, people can go through bouts of illness, sexual relationships might begin to change. Um, How would you feel if your marriage relationship or any of these things changed and you always had to go in and out of worrying about the security of does my spouse really love me anymore? because of these changes. You would feel insecure. Your home life would not be at ease. It would affect the way that you interact with your spouse. And God wants us to be able to have assurance in our relationship with him and to be able to have the Christian life flow out of that assurance. You see, people that teach a theology that says that we have no security... It only works if your relationship with God goes something like this. My son built me this toolbox, and it's awesome. Uh, um, So since it it begins with this faulty premise that there was something that was good in them, so uh, they're starting out with goodness down here, okay, And that caused you to be able to choose God because you had this spark of the divine in you that caused you um, to be able to choose them. And since they believe that you could choose them, then they believe that you can unchoose him. That's the common argument. No one can snatch me out of his hand. Yes, it does say that in John 10, but you can jump out of his hand. It doesn't sound like a very loving daddy to me. So in reality, this horrible theology that says that you can lose your salvation falls apart right there because You didn't choose God. God chose you. And functionally, if you believe that people can lose their salvation, then you have to look at life something like this. You see, like, here's where I got saved, all right? Here's where I interacted Jesus. I'm not saying that people that believe that you can lose your salvation are not saved. I'm just saying that they believe something unfortunate that undermines the reality of their gospel. And 
They believe that their Christian life is just like this. Like I started out, you ever hear a test? Don't most testimonies go like that? If I could chart most testimonies, that's what a graph of a testimony would look like. Oh man, I started out in the dregs. Jesus saved me. Let me tell you about the dregs. And they were so bad. And I did more drugs than anyone that ever lived. And I lived on more streets than anyone that's ever lived in. And my cardboard box was smaller than anybody's cardboard box that they ever lived in. And then I got saved. And now I'm just steadily awesome. Um, <laughs> and the problem is, show of hands, how many of your walks with Jesus actually look like that? Um, doesn't our walk with Jesus look a little bit more like let me get a different color marker here Um, doesn't our walk with Jesus look more like this we start at the cross too and there is upward mobility we're new we're new creations but man I think of like Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and it's like whoo there's a dip there isn't there and, oh, but he doesn't go back to here. He never goes, he never goes back to here. But, but then the Lord begins to minister to you in that season. Oh, there's another valley. And then the Lord begins to minister to you. And you start to grow in Christ. And you start to understand him more. And guess what? Those valleys that used to go like this, now, uh, I know that God's been faithful because he's been so faithful so many times. And man, he's going to be faithful here. And even if God takes me, the outer man's decaying, but the inner man's being renewed each day. Uh, how many people's walk looks more like that? Right? Uh, I think that that's probably more accurate. And it is a big deal to John that we have confidence in our relationship with Christ. Because it's a big deal to your heavenly father that you have confidence in your relationship with him. Such a big deal that he crushed his son. So that you could have it. So let's not toy around with this. Your father does not want you to have to guess about your standing. Because everything else comes from the confidence and the security we have in our relationship with Christ. And the example that John uses, this is so cool to show how confidence in Christ practically impacts your Christian walk, is our prayer life. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have requests that we have asked of him. So like I said, this doctrine of confidence or assurance is very practical, and it's supposed to have far-reaching impact. Um, I always get distracted by looking at that clock. We started late, so I'm going to take my extra minutes to preach. Is that okay? If that's not okay, then... um, I don't know what to do about it, but I want to finish what I have to say because I I think it's important. Um, So it's far-reaching. And a good example might be, have any of you ever been severely out of shape and then you start to get into shape? (laughs) Man, I can gain or lose 30 pounds faster than anyone you'll ever meet, like over the course of a weekend. Um, So you start to feel a little bit better physically. Then you start to be a little bit more confident. Then maybe you start to wear a few less layers. The layers come off. And then confidence begins to impact the way that you begin to see things and the way that you do life. And that's what John is getting here. That's what he's using prayer as an example for. In fact, 
He even uses the word confidence right there in verse 14. So if we're confident and secure in our relationship with Christ, then we begin to feel confident in the way that we communicate with Christ. And it says we can be confident that we pray according to our will, that he hears us. How cool. Can you just stop sometimes when you read your Bibles and just go, whoa, God hears me. There's 7 billion people out there. And this is saying that when I start talking, I have an audience with the Almighty. Wow. Well, how do we know that we pray according to his will? And that's the, again, that's the beautiful thing of having a secure relationship with God. The more, that we, the more secure we become in our relationship with God, the more confident that we know the heart of God. And the more confident we are that we know the heart of God, the more confident we are that we're praying according to his will because we know the heart of God. And the beautiful thing is, the more secure we are in our relationship, and the more confident we are that we know his heart, the more boldly we pray, which is the point of verse 15. Look at it again. It's so good. And we know that he hears us. But if we ask anything, we know that we have the request that we have. Look at that confidence. That confidence only comes from a relationship with Christ. Look, it used to be said of Martin Luther, I love this quote, this is from Ronald Bainton, that he would begin the prayer, it would sound like a theological lecture, but at the end of the prayer you would feel that heaven itself would come down as a result of the boldness of his praying. I love that quote. And ironically, do you know when that prayer life started? After Martin Luther started to develop a newfound confidence in his relationship, when he started to realize that he has assurance in his relationship with Christ. So if you want a good litmus test of how confident you are in your relationship with Christ, how big are your prayers? I mean, I, I'm going to close in five minutes, but give me these five minutes to just pastor through the rest of this passage. Hear me. I, I, I want to shepherd from the pulpit. How big are your prayers? Are they prayers that come as a result of communing with a huge and awesome God? Are they God-sized prayers that could only be prayed with somebody who has great confidence in their walk with Jesus? And if not, I would lovingly encourage you to press into the reality of your confidence with Christ. Because the thing is, sin can't take away your salvation, but if you are living in defiance, it sure can mess up your assurance. It sure can mess up our confidence. It sure can make us feel as if we don't have the access that you do have all along. Because at any point, look, when you're sitting and you're just booking in this direction, God was steady over there. He didn't move. It's not like you sinned and started booking in this direction and God was like, whew, I'm out of here. He's a rock. And he stayed right where he was. So if you're in sin, it might undermine your confidence. Ask yourself, is there anything that is undermining your confidence? It's really worthy of asking yourself. And as you grow in confidence in your walk with Jesus, show that confidence by praying big, bold, confident, God-sized prayers. I continue to pray daily for revival in this nation. You know what, maybe Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I don't know. But until he does, I'm going to pray, Lord, come and change the fate of a nation. You know, I continue to pray for a church planting movement here on the Jersey Shore that will spring out of this place. And I'm delighted that Redeemer Point Pleasant is meeting this morning. But I used to pray for a dozen Redeemer churches here on the shore. And 
lately I've been praying for 40. And each time I pray for it, I feel this tug in my spirit say, I'm bigger than that. Ask for bigger. Go and be like John Knox and look over New Jersey and say, God, give me Jersey or I die. Pray prayers with that type of boldness. I continue to pray that churches that have stopped preaching the gospel and started preaching heresy would either repent or give up the real estate that they have no purpose owning. Because I'm confident that these prayers are in line with the heart of God, and they're not too big for God to answer. So where's your confidence in God, and has it caused you to pray with confidence lately? And this thought of confidence in God resulting in confidence in prayer flows right into the next section, confidence in intercession and relationship with others in community. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, If anyone knows his brother is committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And those who commit sins do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that anyone should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. So this is saying that we can confidently pray for our struggling brothers and sisters in community. And God can bring life. Think about that. I remember reading my Bible after I saw... Um, Moses intercede and change the fate of the Israelites. And they were so jacked up in the midst of their sin and rebellion that God was about to take them out. Remember that passage in Exodus? He's like, why did I even bring you out here? You're crying for onions, for God's sake. Like, is that really that big of a deal? And God's like, he's ready to smite them. And Moses would get before God and intercede on behalf of his brothers and sisters. And the fate of a nation was changed through the prayers of a faithful man who was confident in his walk with God. And I remember going to a Bible study after I read that, and there was a bunch of just young, idealistic Christians that thought that we were going to change the world. And I remember just taking that prayer request, and I said, man, I want to learn to intercede like Moses. I want to pray and see the fate of towns and cities and states and countries changed. Elijah was a man with a nature like his own, and he prayed for three and a half years. It did not rain. That's what it means in James when it quotes it. And my good buddy, thank God for him, his prayer life is amazing. He says, then do it. If that's really what you want, do it. What's stopping you? God's not a respecter of man. Moses was nothing. He was a man just like you. Elijah was nothing. He was a man just like you. Commit your life to that kind of intercession and God will do it. And that kind of confident prayer is what John's calling us to. Imagine being so confident in your relationship with Christ they were confident that you could change the fate of whole cities. Like, that's mind-blowing, right? I really think we undersell the power of prayer. Imagine if you could pray that the opiate epidemic in Ocean and Monmouth County would stop. Oh, God. I've gone to too many funerals of people that have died way too early. I'm sick of it. It should put me on my knees weeping. Imagine if you could intercede on behalf of dying churches and the Lord would blow fresh wind and fresh fire into those churches. Or we can intercede on behalf of a prodigal child and see that child come back to Jesus. That's the kind of confidence it's talking about in this passage. So as this letter wraps up, John gives some final thoughts that relate to some things that undermine our assurance. He says, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
We know that we are from God and the world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God of eternal life. And I love this little tag at the end. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So as he's closing, he gives a pretty strong warning against playing with unrepentant sin. The final verses, remember, they remind me of the Johnny Cash song, Don't take your guns to town, son, leave your guns at home, they'll... Don't take your guns to take. You know that song? Um, we were listening to it on the way, way over. I introduced Elijah to it. It's like John sees the kids grabbing the car keys and about to head out the door, and he's going to give them some final advice. And he's like, son, don't take your guns to town. Don't play with unrepentant sin. I promise it'll destroy you. You will not win. You versus playing with unrepentant sin is a loss. It's like the writer of Proverbs says, who can take fire into their bosom and not be burned? But again, it comes back to this idea of confidence. For abiding in Christ, you don't have to worry about that, do you? You can be confident that this warning doesn't apply to you. And in verse 18, John gives this final word of protection. Again, this comes back to this idea of confidence. We know that everyone who has been born of the God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. He's telling the kids, it's an evil world out there. You will not only encounter evil, but the whole world is under the power of the evil one, under the prince of the power of the air, we read in other places. And you can see the fatherliness of John begin to come out right now. He's saying, be watchful, kids. The world is an evil place. But this, too, comes back to the idea of confidence. If we're abiding in Christ... You do not need to fear the present evil. Too many people get too spooked by the evil in this world. Look, no weapon that's forged against you shall prosper. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I can continue, but I've, I don't want to keep you guys much longer, so I do want to wrap up. I said five minutes, and that was like eight minutes ago, so I already lied once. Um, so those who abide in Christ are protected from the evil one. And then he prepares to wrap up and he leads them back to the fount where they began their confidence with Christ. And I love the way he caps the letter. In the final verse, he closes it like a father asking his kids, avoid those things that would destroy your confidence. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Consider all the areas of confidence like a daddy talking to their kid. And then instead of looking at the warning against idols, like John ending the book with this heaviness, Look at it like a father giving parting shots of wisdom. And he loves his kids too much. And he's saying, look, on the way out the door, don't do anything that's going to shake your confidence. Don't pursue anything that's going to leave you with emptiness. What dad wouldn't do that? You can't play with idols and not have your confidence undermined. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home. So all of this flows out of being confident in our relationship with God. So I want to ask you some questions that come right out of the themes of this book um, to close this message. Are you confident that you have reality, um, a, rea a real encounter with Jesus that has changed your life? Are you confident in your relationship with Jesus? And look, I don't ask that question with a presupposition that you're not. You guys are great. I'm hoping that you're walking out of here saying, man, this didn't spark me. This confirmed me. But if you are not confident, look into that. Drill into it. That's why you're here. 
Do you have boldness or timidity in Christ? Love casts out all fear. It's a lot easier to be bold about something when you're confident about it, right? Um, you ever see somebody that uh, started some crazy diet and, and they get very confident. They post about it 12 times on Facebook a day and they post all of their pictures and, and they're bold. They're like, I, I want you to know that all I eat is kale and you need to know that for some reason. Um, well, when you're confident in something, you're able to be bold about it. Are you confident that Christ has plans to keep you because he wouldn't have chosen you if he didn't plan to keep you? And the real, these are the realities that are yours by being the elect of God. I'm going to ask if, if Janet and uh, Al would come up. As I, I just, um, you know what? I'm going to ask if you'd close your eyes and just take these in. You've been chosen so you cannot become unchoosable. You are holy and blameless in Christ even when you don't feel holy and blameless. You've been adopted even if you don't feel like a son or a daughter. You are forgiven, even if you feel unforgivable. You've been redeemed, even if you don't feel redeemable. You are loved, even if you don't feel lovable. You are part of a plan, even if you feel like your life has no meaning. You've been approved, and you cannot become unapprovable. And you can have assurance, because the one who saved you did so because he loves you, and he plans to keep you Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Jesus, thank you for blessing our socks off this morning. Assurance is a beautiful thing. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Blessed.